Welcome to Roughneck Dispatch, a podcast about storytelling, how we do it, why we do it, and who the hell does it best. We talk to the best storytellers about their greatest stories and why they have to tell them. I'm your host, crime writer and occasional journalist, Matt Phillips. Every episode, we start with a voice from the past. So, here we go, down the rabbit hole. Voice from the past this episode is the great Jim Thompson from his novel, After Dark, My Sweet. I rode a streetcar to the edge of the city limits, then I started to walk, swinging the old thumb whenever I saw a car coming. I was dressed pretty good, a white shirt, brown slacks, and sports shoes. I'd had a shower at the railroad station and a hair trim in a barber college, so all in all, I looked okay. But no one would stop for me. There'd been a lot of hitchhike robberies in that section, and people just weren't taking chances. Around four in the afternoon, after I'd walked about ten miles, I came to this roadhouse. I went on past it a little ways, walking slower and slower, arguing with myself. I lost the argument. The part of me that was on the beam lost it, and I went back. The bartender slopped a beer down in front of me, scooped up the change I'd laid on the counter, sat down on a stool again, and picked up a newspaper. I said something about it was sure a hot day. He grunted without looking up. I said it was a nice, pleasant little place he had there, and that he certainly knew how to keep his beer cold. He grunted again. I looked down at my beer, feeling the short hairs rising on the back of my neck. I guessed, I knew, that I should never have come in here. I should never go in any place where people might not be nice and polite to me. That's all they have to do, you know. Just be as nice to me as I am to them. I've been in four institutions, and my classification card always reads just about the same. William Kidd Collins, blonde, extremely handsome, very strong, agile, mild criminal tendencies or none according to environmental factors. Mild multiple neuroses, environmental, psychoses. Korsakoff, no syndrome, induced by shock, aggravated by worry. Treatment? Absolute rest, quiet, wholesome food and surroundings. Collins is amiable, polite, patient, but may be very dangerous if aroused. The Roughneck Dispatch Podcast is supported by the Independent Fiction Alliance, a professional association for independent authors and publishers. The IFA mission is to uphold the tenets of freedom of speech and expression. Check out the IFA at independentfictionalliance.com. This episode on Roughneck Dispatch, we have Matthew Lewis. Matthew Lewis is a self-taught writer, editor, publisher, and graphic artist. His novel, The Wrong Man, is currently being developed as a major motion picture. Matt founded Out of the Gutter Magazine and Gutter Books, and he's got a new novel slated for publication this spring. This one's called Roots Down to Hell. I had the chance to read an advanced copy of the novel, and it's downright in line with all the great noir novels of the past 100 years. Matt, thanks for joining Roughneck Dispatch. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. Glad to have you. So um, this episode's voice from the past was the great Jim Thompson. I think he's great. Um, curious, no ha- having having read your book, uh, well, well, Jim Thompson is explicitly mentioned in this book. Uh, the main character in this novel is a, is a big reader of crime fiction, which I, I love the aspect of the novel. Um, was Thompson influential yeah. on you? Uh, how, how much of, a, of his work have you read? I've read, I would say, um, most of it, except for probably a couple of the early ones where he was sort of getting his sea legs as a novelist. But all of his all of his classic crime stuff I've read and, and lots of it I've read multiple times. And he's a, a definitely a major influence, but um, not so much necessarily as like a prose stylist or as a, the, the brilliance of his plotting, say, but as sort of a character, like sort of a, some, someone who just jumps in there and takes chances and throws random stuff at the reader just to see what'll happen. That's the, that's the aspect of it that appeals to me. And that actually, I've seen that from other people. So I, I kind of, I don't know if you want me to launch off, (laughs) go on a, on a tangent on something else, but uh, what's interesting about it is, you know, the author, uh, Stephen Hunter, Mm -hmm. he's a, he, he writes all of these kind of, they're they're kind of they're pretty pulp fictiony. They're, a lot of it is uh, gun fetish stuff. He's got the, the Earl Swagger and Bob Lee Swagger series. Okay, and I'm not a huge fan of all of his series, but he wrote a book called Dirty White Boys. Which oh, is, yeah, I've read Dirty White Boys. I read it in high school. Yeah, as a matter of fact, yeah. 
uh, okay, yeah, it's it's wild. And he goes, he he throws all kinds of crazy stuff at the reader. And I saw an interview with him, or excuse me, I read an interview with him way back when, when I had first discovered the book and was just looking into him. And uh, he said his his inspiration was he wanted to write a book like Jim Thompson would write. But the interesting part about that is he said he had never read a Jim Thompson book. So he was just thinking of Jim Thompson as this, this character, right? this guy. Right. And, and he's, I think Jim Thompson is pretty unique in, in, you know, crime in the crime fiction world as, as sort of a, a character unto himself. It's kind of Ooh. like a, uh, like Kilgore, Kilgore Trout, you know, from Vonnegut. Sure. Where he's, he's got this, uh, a, a writer who exists more as a personality and a guy that's that's going to come up with the next weird off the wall thing, right? So yeah, that's the yeah. And we should say so so for for readers or listeners who haven't read Jim Thompson. So I mean, just just some context. Uh, you know, a number of his novels in the past what thirty years have been made into films. So like chief among them, probably the Killer Inside Me, um, with Casey Affleck yeah, a couple years with, back. Yep. And then there was uh, the Getaway, which um, gosh, he was in that John Cusack. Uh, you know, that's a, that was a very well well known film. I'm right, I'm right there, right? When I say that, yeah, yeah. And then there was an earlier version with Steve McQueen, and I think there might have even been right. a black and white one before that. Yeah, definitely. So, and and Thompson just as a character, I mean, it's interesting because so I've studied Thompson pretty heavily. So what's interesting about him is during the Great Depression, he um, he's got a great uh, uh, a great um, I call it a memoir, but I'm not sure it's completely true. It's called Roughneck, um, which is a great book as well. Oh. But, but um, and my favorite novel of his actually is Savage Night. But anyway, that's a whole nother story. But he, that's an off the wall book where at the end, well, I don't want to give away the end, but there's sort of this merging of the writer as personality with the narrator, with the main character, which is really, really interesting. But point is, yeah. Um, I was going to say about Thompson is a lot of people don't know this, but he wrote uh, he, well, he led, I think it was the Oklahoma Federal Writers Project for the WPA dur during the Great Depression. Um, and I should double check that. But one of the interesting things about him as a character, just as a writer in person, is um, he had a criticism of Gra The Grapes of Wrath, Steinbeck's famous novel. Have you ever heard about this story? Um, I haven't heard this specific thing with, with Thompson addressing the grapes of wrath. No. Yeah. So it's funny because he kind of, he criticized the grapes of wrath in a, in a few really specific ways because he was from the area and he said, you know, he had all these factual uh, things against the book. And basically his point was um, it was, it was sort of uh, what's the word. It was almost pitched as like a, a documentarian type approach to that time period. And he's like, it wasn't. It, it, we were doing that work right. as writers because they were employing writers to go out and document. The same thing they did with photographers. But uh, so I think that that influenced him as he moved on into into novels. But but yeah. So he I'm was glad. not a fan of Steinbeck? Uh, I don't know if he wasn't a fan. <laughs> I, I think he criticized the novel specifically. I didn't, didn't, didn't criticize the writing so much as how, it's kind of like what happens with marketing of novels. It's like, this is the next great American novel about whatever. And people are like, um, not really. It's not true. To, you know, because there's this idea that if it's the greatest of something, it should be true to it, the essence of what that thing is. Um, which is right. confusing, but long story short, Thompson, um, people can pick up his books pr pretty easily at used bookstores or, or wherever you buy books. Um, and he, I, I, I think he's one of the great ones. So let's talk about noir because he's a noir novelist for sure. Like you wouldn't even say, you would say crime fiction, but really noir. Um, so for you, when I say that, and this is in your book, the main character kind of, d d you know, talks about the distinction between hard boiled and noir. Um, can you, when I say noir, what do you, what do you, what does that mean to you? If you can define it for people. Well, um, actually this is kind of, this was basically the jumping off point for creating this book is I, I was thinking about the classic, I would say written form noir formula. And I think of Postman Always Rings Twice as the, the original noir novel. Am I wrong about that? Is there something earlier that would be considered? Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, um, I, I think probably well, anyways, you could I, say I, that that's that's considered it amongst you know everybody. I think it set the it it established the formula that would be that people would reference and, and that forward. sold right that was selling that people wanted that kind of thing. 
Well, he, it's, it's the, this is, this is kind of my take on it is it has, it sort of presumes like a, a, like Christian moral standards. So it, it actually, let's see, it, <laughs> it, it lures the, the reader in with, uh, by, by appealing to sort of their worst instincts, it promises, you know, lurid sex and violence, et cetera. Sure. And it and it kind of makes the readers complicit in that as the story goes. That you you the the people committing these heinous acts are sympathetic, and you you end up rooting for them. But yes. then in the in what I consider the the classic at least written form noir formula, based on the postman always rings twice, is that then in the end it always punishes the protagonists, and it sure. ends up it's kind of like finger wagging at the at the reader because it. it undermines everything they wanted and often in, a, in an ironic way that actually it, it the the seeds of their destruction were planted in the in the details of the their plot to gain whatever they're trying to gain or to indulge their worst instincts so the so that let's just say the character's pursuit of whatever their worst instincts are that pursuit itself um because they're trying they're, they want to do bad things and they do bad things that's that's where their demise comes from to simplify it or is that too simple yeah well it's it's like to to think of the christian moral scheme is they make a deal with the devil they do something that they know is bad and that they shouldn't do and so they they're condemning themselves from the outset so under those terms my my book and um even lots of jim thompson books wouldn't necessarily under just strictly under those terms which is what i was thinking about wouldn't necessarily um, classify as noir under those terms but that's but there's also it's a it has a much broader definition obviously you know it's the it's in terms of style and the the level of cynicism and the you know yep. dealing dealing with cedar cedar elements of society etc right yeah and i think well it's i know a lot of people who listen might think of film they're, they're going to think of film noir right when we talk about this but right very distinct from that maybe not in mood or or even content but just or stylistically but what happens how it happens when it happens who it happens to all could be different than what you'd see well in film yeah noir. in film noir you can have the the bad guy gets their comeuppance in the end and the, it basically you know you're it can be a cop. Your your good guy, the guy that would be classified as a good guy, prevails in the end. So, under those terms, you wouldn't necessarily consider that noir more hard right. boiled. Even though, like you got Sam Spade, who's kind of borderline. He's he's has sort of a foot in both worlds. To go back to another one of the originals, and so that that I guess you could debate that under these terms, like I keep saying. <laughs> yeah, it's um sort of unwieldy but i like that about it which makes it good um yeah it's interesting and we'll talk about film a little bit maybe maybe a little bit later but um i want to stick with this topic a little bit i mean so so well let's let's set up the book uh roots down to hell um give us what Try to give us the the gist of what the book's about. Let's not give away anything because it's a great novel. Um, if you could just set that up, and then I think I have some follow up questions from there. Well, the original title that I had to change because it uh, hindered promotion efforts. <laughs> the original title was Noir Bastard, and actually that that I started with just the title. It kind of came into my head. There's the book has a has um, it described the these are blue collar guys and they're building an apartment and I happened to be building an apartment at the time and was listening to various audiobooks while I did it. And I listened to an audiobook called, um, it was free and, uh, it's, it's very much classic noir and it follows the formula I just described. It's called black wings has my angel and it's a pretty cheesy name, but it's a, it's a really, it's an incredible book. It's great, uh, stylistically and it, and it follows the classic formula. So that started my brain just turning away on it. And, uh, to come all the way back around yeah so i i started thinking of how how this would play out in the modern world because the the presumed morality of that time is so much different than what we have now and that's why my original title was noir bastard because it's basically you can't 
create the same thing as as there was in that time period in the classic era. There's just a right. totally different set of assumptions. So you've got to kind of bastardize it in a way. And so it is, it's not, it's, that's why it's not necessarily my, my story is not except for stylistically. And, and it would obviously be classified that way by most, most people, but it's not necessarily noir by particular standards. So, so, so the moral center that, of society, it does. So the moral center of society has shifted and changed from that time period. And so it's bastardization of, of that. It's because that's changed. The noir has to change when you're writing it now. Right. Yeah. And even the protagonist, he, in, in yep. what I consider the classic formula the protagonist is making a conscious choice to do evil. And sure. so they're tempting fate in that way. And, and then in mine, it, I mean, it opens with him having committed his heinous act. So you, it, it's, that's not, uh, that's not a big giveaway to say he didn't make a, a conscious choice. It's a crime of passion. And then there's also the question, depending on your viewpoint, uh, some people might see him as justified and it's pretty it's kind of um um a little controversial to take that viewpoint but uh it could be interpreted that way so it's playing mm-hmm. with with these elements of noir and that's why i used it in kind of a meta sense because i don't know that you can write a a strictly noir novel in the modern world that's an interesting thought and we'll get to the changing of the title in a little bit uh, because that seems weird to me, but um, actually it doesn't having tried to promote books, but there's lots of questions around that. But um, so yeah, Roots yeah, Down the Hell. That, that they won't allow the, the word bastard. Yes. It's, uh, yeah. yeah. I don't know. The guy told me um, it was the first one was Amazon ads and then there's other ones. He said, you got to change it. So that's where I'm at. <laughs> yeah. That's um how to feel about that is I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's really interesting because I mean, why? Because the word bastard, right? I mean, that's the only reason. And so that's is, it. The, is, yeah. Is that a, um, some, some form of curse word? I don't know. Um, it is now it's like bitch, right? I mean, it's yeah. not, it's not in, in, in strict literal terms, but as it's used, it's a, it's considered vulgar. So it's, uh, it's, I mean, it's reasonable if you're going to be, say buying ads and they're going to be, you're going to put something up on a billboard, you know, right. anybody's going to see it. And it's from their standpoint, it's, it's reasonable. Hmm. That's so interesting. Um, I mean, I would think not to get too much into it and it's, it's neither here nor there, but the killer inside me seems like a, a, a more um, uh, um, evocative title than noir bastard in the sense of like advertising or something but maybe not i don't i don't know i'm i'm not an advertising person so well the words themselves aren't considered vulgar so and hopefully uh, i haven't actually tested it but hopefully hell isn't either i assume it's not <laughs> oh, <laughs> you're going to you're going to learn yeah i'll find out real quick here yeah so so well let's let's just get in the book just a little bit again not trying to give it away so he commits kevin the the main character commits this heinous act uh in the beginning of the book and it sets off this continued moral dilemma really uh but the interesting thing about him for me is that so he's a drywaller with his uncle correct me where i get this wrong you got that right yeah so um there's a there's actually a really funny scene about that i don't think it's meant to be funny but it comes across as funny to me and i'll tell you about in a sec but um Basically, Kevin was, he's sort of like this incel guy. I mean, he's like an incel. He, he was like playing video games in his, in his teens and like as he's growing up and he's just like um, having mental health issues, right? Like we kind of get into this and basically Cliff comes in. He's like, you're going to do drywall to me. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, bring your ass up to speed. Right. And right. it worked like it works um, in the sense of. And we meet Kevin after he's gone through this this change with with Cliff. So that part of the book to me is, um, I think, very unique. I'm not sure anybody's done that as well as you have here that I've read yet. Um, so what are your thoughts around that? And and how did you conceptualize this sort of, I don't want to call it a mentorship. It's like a male-male relationship. Like, like basically like, dude, grow up is what Cliff is yeah. saying. Well, I mean, I took it from life. I, there's a lot of guys in my extended family and in circles that I'm in 
who are having this crisis because mainly because they don't have dads. And so they don't know how to orient themselves in the world. And so, uh, yeah, I took it uh, almost <laughs> directly lifted it from life. Like uh, the, the character is obviously a composite, but um, the, it's, it's based on actual people that I've observed in this situation and who I've worked with. And it's you, that's basically, if you want to get good work out of them, you got to be kind of a dick. So that's, it's yeah. Just lifted from life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I remember I, that father figure, that's really interesting for, for men and boys. I think there's something really to that. I mean, I remember some of the things Cliff says in the book about work, about like, you know, getting shit done. I remember my dad saying to me, like when I, you know, doing projects at work or, or at, at home, you know what I mean? Like home projects and things like that, right. just chores. And without that, I mean, it's sort of like, cause I do have that mindset, like with my son where it's like, dude, stand up, put your shoulders back, get it done. You know? And, and I don't, I think if you don't have that, it's, it's a big, it's a big miss. And not even just communicated in that way, but to see it, you see your dad doing the things that he asked example. you and not complaining. And you just internalize that. And a right. lot of these guys just, they don't understand that. They have no concept. And it, it's not, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be the biological father in the home or whatever, you know, but sure. it, there has to be some, something to pattern yourself after. And a lot of guys these days don't have that. It's a, it's a big problem. Yeah. I think it's a massive problem. Um, anybody who's in the working world now probably has encountered it as well, but I think, um, yeah, I, so, I mean, there's one, the funny part I talked about, it was funny to me and it may not be to others. But I think that's okay that basically, I think it's maybe halfway through the book. Um, and I, this relates to this conversation. So again, not giving anything away, it won't change how you experience the book, I don't think. But um, all this bad shit has happened to Kevin. Things are going crazy. Um, that's really simplifying it. But they're, you know, they're at a bar, I think, or at lunch during, during the workday, drinking beers. And finally, you know, he tells Cliff all this stuff and this, that, and the other. And Cliff goes, well, man, at least you still have drywall. You know, and it's like, yeah, like I love that line because it's like, yeah, you have a purpose, um, a good job. You know what I mean? Like we we have work to do. Like, yeah, all this shit happened, but we still have work to do today. Um, and so I really appreciated that. I mean, he's Cliff is a, is a really interesting, funny character. Um, yeah, I actually that that was directly from life. That's my cousin who I worked with who the the cliff character is a definitely a composite but aspects of it are when i was a younger man and was working with my cousin and he was he actually does, does fencing and um that i worked with him on his fence crew and that was his line <laughs> he still got fence so yep <laughs> let's get to work so yeah that yeah a lot a lot of the things in there are just uh i i wrote it at kind of like a dead sprint got it all down so a lot of things are taken from life and not really considered again after that. Like they ring true because it's something that is out there and, and that it's part of my experience. Right. It's authentic to your, your lived experience. Yeah. I mean, so the book, I read it in two quick sittings and I, and for people listening, I didn't have like the hard copy book. I was reading it like on my computer. So I'm sure I would have read it in one sitting with, with a the book in my hand right. or, or on a, on a tablet or whatever. Um, and so it does read like that. I mean, it's got a great, the pacing's great. Um, stylistically, it's great. I, I think, you know, for me, I identify with you're writing about these working class, at least Kevin is a working class character. Um, and maybe that's a distinction of noir as well in today's world. I think, you know, there's a lot of these, uh, for me, what I, I think what I like about this type of novel is that it's not about your like upper middle class person who their life is kind of falling into shambles because of the decisions they made. It's about a person who's a working person who's dealing with all the specific things that we all deal with trying to make it. And then all this shit happens. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. And it's more, it's um, like the elements are his, his uh, where he's oriented as far as uh, you could say culturally. And then he's dealing with the, cultural developments that are unique to this point in time we're living through right now so that that's a that's where a, a lot of the at least early in the story a lot of the tension comes from and that's kind of the theme throughout the story that goes back to 
trying to figure out how you would write a, a noir novel in this day and age. Yep. So then, yeah, it's definitely oriented to the working class and it's that mindset and it's kind of a no bullshit mindset contrasted with a lot of you know, different things we're dealing with in society now. Right. Yeah. I mean, I was looking at some of the, some of the blurbs on the website, on the gutter books website. So publishers gutter books and um, the website just sort of uh, the blurbs kind of give from, from other well-known writers give a, a little bit more for readers. I think, Again, not wanting to give away too much. I mean, I think the book Kevin is is wading through all the the media stuff we're all dealing with um, on a daily basis. Things we're dealing with in the working world uh, have manifested like in his own life. Um, yeah, and it's really interesting. Now, so the other interesting part of the book, I mean, there's a lot of interesting parts, but the but when I think about what you just described. The, and you talked about this kind of Christian moral center from the original, you know, noir novel. Um, this book dovetails into that as well, right? Because all of yeah. a sudden, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's I'm I'm introducing that theme in a in a sort of roundabout way, and it kind of I, I it doesn't define it as it goes on, but it's it's there to be considered because that's that's you could say that's the definition of noir is um, is wrestling with um moral ambiguity so and where do you where do you find your center and in today's world there's nowhere to i mean you're certainly not required to assume uh, any kind of christian standards and or uh, even you know uh, there's there's no concrete definite morality it's basically up in the air so that's where that enters to to the a character who is who has decided in a very concrete way <laughs> where, where, where morality comes from. So, yeah. It, it, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, I think what's interesting too is the, or what's fascinating is like he actually grapples. So like on a daily basis, we can just like ignore a lot of stuff, right? Like you can go do drywall or do your job and like, you can just laugh at all sorts of different things that are happening in society. Like that's crazy. That's stupid. That's dumb. But um, when it confronts you in the face on both sides, because that's what happens to him. It's it's like sort of this leftist idea and then the more, you know, rightist ideas come come together somewhere for him. And he's got to like, he actually as a character, as a working class character grapples with that. And I again, I don't know that that exists in modern literature today that I've read. I mean, possibly it does, but I haven't read that. Um, and I love that part of it. Yeah, it's kind of the the state of um, I don't know I don't know if I'd say writing culture. It's kind of like it's you're you're put in the position where you aren't allowed really to to unless you're doing an indie thing like this, but you're not really allowed to explicitly explore how the other half thinks <laughs> and what how what their take is on these things, and if that's not too vague, <laughs> you know, from a from a more right wing sort of down to earth pragmatic perspective facing all of this uh just you know bizarre theory that's being thrown at people yep. and so so that's yeah that's that's deliberately a, a central thing and theme in the book right i would say kevin i mean he um presented with both sides of different things and nuanced though it is he calls bullshit on a lot, right? But then he sort of says comes to terms with other things. So I think I thought that was, you know, that's that's really unique. Cause I think, yeah, you're right. There's a lot of there's been a cultural shift around not examining multiple view viewpoints, but essentially just focusing on the one. And, you know, as a writer, I suppose <laughs> that's easier, right? Like, though this is my character, this is who he is, but more interesting characters are it either trying to mold and change or change themselves or examine themselves, which he's doing. Um, but so before I get into, to yeah, my, or go ahead. Sorry. You gotta, you gotta, sort of, you gotta, I don't, I don't say that you have to, but there's just certain aspects of postmodern thought of, of far left thought that have to be incorporated into, into your, your plan for your book. <laughs> and so it's so, and that's where kind of the, the Jim Thompson influence comes in 
is just to throw throw a wrench in the gears, just throw stuff in there, mix it up, defy expectations and see what happens. So that's interesting what you just said, that you sort of, when you write a book now, you have to incorporate certain elements of postmodern thought, which, I mean, we could call that leftist thought, I suppose, um, without getting too academic about it. But that's interesting as an artist having to think through that. Yeah. I mean, um, it's probably no secret. I, I personally kind of just rejected outright. Like uh, that's not where I'm at, but, um, you do have to wrestle with it and you have to deal with people who are, uh, feel very strongly about it and risk being shouted down, et cetera. So yeah, that's, that's, um, it's just a, a objective fact of the culture surrounding writing and creativity at this point in time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've dealt with that some with a, with a book I'm, I have coming out in November. Um, decisions I made around a specific character that not being okay. Right. With certain people. Um, and I don't know to what extent I'm so th- what's interesting. So for listeners is like, you know, if you walk into a bookstore, you see certain genres, right? Books are in certain genres and that's how you go find your books. And so there's a lot of gatekeeper people who make decisions based on what they know they can sell. Right. So that makes sense to everybody, I think. But what's been happening, and tell me if you think I'm wrong, what I've seen happening is that things that are more nuanced, like this book, things that analyze both sides, um, like this book, things that have characters who are grappling with these things and don't necessarily come to an answer all the time, uh, like this book, are simply harder to sell in those genres because, um, you know, it's, it's it requires thought. It requires people to actually care about not always getting their viewpoint thrown back at them. Um, does yeah, that make I sense? Think it's like you said, there's a there's a, a gatekeeper aspect to it. So I don't I don't know that it's hard to sell. I don't expect to retire off the proceeds of this book or anything. I, I'm not a, I'm not necessarily a case study for it. But generally speaking, I don't know if more people tested boundaries and spoke more frankly. I don't know that it would be hard to sell because I don't think sure. it, I don't think it, I don't think it's gotten out there. So there's yeah, there's no way to know, but there is a, a gatekeeper aspect where it at the at level of the uh, editors and publishers, it's not getting through. So yes, we don't know. Right, we don't know. So I think my my ultimate point probably is that you know all these things happening in society they do influence freedom of expression because. Um, you know, it's it's harder to get those things uh, reflected in what's you know being published in this case. But self censorship. There's just a lot of a lot of people have to. They know that if they want to even get a foot in the door, they have to conform to these certain expectations. And I'm kind of outside of that. Like I say, I'm not I'm not planning to retire off the proceeds of this book. Sure. And I'm not really my regular life is not really in the writing world. So. It's for me, it's, I'm exercising a part of my brain. This is fascinating to me, but so I can take these chances. But uh, yeah, nor, and as far as the, the, whole, the, the whole writing publishing scene, um, I think, it's, I think there, there's this culture there that you just have to deal with. Yeah. So that brings me to, uh, I wanted to discuss, you know, before I get off the uh, podcast with you, Out of the Gutter. So you're the founder of Out of the Gutter. Um, and gutter books, which is, was sprung off from out of the gutter, um, and originally flash fiction, a flash fiction offensive as well, right? Um, is that correct? Yeah, actually, well, I started uh, out of the gutter. I got that going way back when, and then a writer who I haven't seen around in a long time, named DZ Allen, who I was working with, he's like, "Hey, this will help promote it." So he started flash fiction. He started it actually as uh, DZ Allen's muzzle flash. This is going way back, yeah. and then um, somehow. Somehow we morphed that into flash fiction offensive. But yeah, gut, out of the gutter as the uh, little printed journal that I produced was started first. And that, right. that became like the online uh, adjunct or whatever the correct term would be. It became just a partner program with it. Yeah. So, and just so for for context, I mean, we're talking like, I guess it would be pre-2008 because I got my first flash fiction piece published in flash fiction offensive, maybe 09 or something. Um and that was really influential. But what else, what else was influential? And I don't know if that you know this or maybe people have told you or not, but so there was 
what you published with Out of the Gutter was originally, it was like a, how do I describe it? It was like a pulp, pulp publication, like a pulp novel, like a small novel. You might buy it like a drugstore, but it was like all these like really crazy stories you sourced. Um, right. I think I remember their essays, right? Um, and like, yeah, it, it would come, was it quarterly or monthly? Cause I got a bunch of them and I actually tried to search for them before I interviewed you. Uh, but they were hugely <laughs> influential on me. Like, cause I'm like, wow, someone's really doing this. Right. I mean, did you get that feedback from people at the time or even now? Yeah, I did. I got, I got that kind of got me going. Like the whole reason I started it was because, um, you know, I, I, I mean, I'm not self-dramatizing, but I'm kind of in this blue collar world where if you try and tell people that you like to read and write, they just look at you and, <laughs> you know, they don't, they don't know what to say. So sure. I, I was trying to break into, you know, I, to establish myself in writing circles and the online world made that possible, but I didn't want to just be a guy submitting and have to go through the, this long process to, to get, get things going. So I, I just started it. I just, I actually just started emailing people and figuring it out as I went. Yeah. And, uh, Sorry, I, I got off. Well, well, okay, go back to the question. No, I was just saying that was hugely influential <laughs> on me. So you're saying other yeah. people have reached out to you and told you the same thing? As it went on, well, okay, I I definitely got that sense. Um, and it, it, it got a lot of respect for it, more more than I would have expected. So I, I, it struck a chord with a lot of people. That was yep. that was definitely apparent to me. And so, and my as far as what it was, I was just trying to make it uh, off the wall entertaining, just over the top. Yeah, and that's why there's so much random stuff. It was in there. fun. I would pick the most like just lurid, ridiculous stories that I could, yes. and and I would write them myself and put them in there. And then there's these fake ads. Yeah, it was, it's, yeah, the fake it ads. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. No, it was it was amazing. Like when it showed up at the house, it was like, wow, this is awesome, dude. Like, I'm so stoked someone's doing this, and that really influenced me to like keep because I because, and I don't know if you experienced this as well, but you know, I um, like for me. So like for my books, I, pu I publicize them. Like I'll go into laundromats and paste like a, or, you know, pin up like a flyer for the book. And like, I sell books that way. Like I'm, I'm writing books for people who are like sitting at the laundromat or like at the bus stop or well, it's not like, yeah. you know what I mean? I'm not trying to be Shakespeare. Like and the, I get, the indie ethic. That's good. Yeah. And I mean, it's, but, but it's about who the stories are about. So um, you know, the fact that you chose to start something, but also the types of stories you were writing, um, and publishing, we should say, uh, I, I think, you know, there's a huge audience for that and it's not always, they don't always get what they need. So that was really cool to me that you were doing that. Yeah. I've, I've wanted to go back and do it again, but it's very labor intensive but yes. at this point in my life. I don't think I, I don't think I could. Because I was, I was just making the, I was producing it from scratch and doing every little part of it. Yeah. And, and just I was so, actually when I, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, so readers know, like when, when you say from scratch, like it was like a not, I mean, it was like a hundred pages. Like when it arrived at my house, it was early. Like uh, each one was 200 pages. Oh actually. yeah. Yeah. It was like a big novel and I like, couldn't even get through it all because I, you know, it was, re but like, it and was it just awesome. It was organized by uh, read time. So that's, a, that's, a, I t I'll tell you, one of the influence was these uh, bathroom readers. <laughs> I think it's um, Uncle John's bathroom readers. That was one thing. And they would, and so everything's broken up so you can consume it in little bites. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, each one was 200 pages. Um, and uh, I forgot what else I was going to say, but yes. Yeah, no, it was, it was fascinating and just, uh, I thought really inspiring. You know, I thought from, for me personally, it was like, wow, there is a spot for this kind of writing and storytelling and these characters. So I really appreciate it. I think just thank you for doing that. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. That was, was yeah awesome. it, And it was a crash course in everything for me in publishing. I, yeah. I, I appointed myself an editor, so I had to really uh, learn story mechanics and I had to, um, you know, learn grammar in, in some cases <laughs> I had to, because, you know, you don't want to make a fool of yourself. You're, you're putting it out there. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was, uh, an education for me. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, you know, out of the gutter, still alive and well, gutter books is publishing, um, roots down to hell as well as, uh, oh gosh, there's the Waylon Jennings anthology coming out probably in the next year or so, Correct. I think. And I actually have a story in that. So I'm really stoked about that. Um, oh, awesome. um, 
But like that's going to be really uh, weren't no other way to be. I think is the title of the anthology right now. Weren't another other way to be. Yeah, weren't it's another the, other uh, way to be. Yeah. I think it's a, a Waylon song. Waylon, I should say, who uh, that was written by Billy Joe Shaver. Right. So it's a it's a classic honky tonk heroes. Yeah, definitely. In fact, the story I have is Black Rose, uh, which is a Billy Joe Shaver song. I took it from that. Yeah. 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 Billy Joe Shaver, one of the one of the great writers of all time. What do you say? Simple don't need grease. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I got a good Christian raising and an yeah. education. Yeah, <laughs> why you treat me this way? Yeah, yeah, funny guy. Uh, great writer. Uh, if you haven't heard Billy Joe Shaver's music, definitely check that out. Um, yeah. So anyway, I th- I thought that uh, the evolution of Out of the Gutter, but really the evolution of Noir since then, I I feel like that, you know, attempt on your part. It's not an attempt. It's still ongoing. But that, um creation has really influenced what's being done in independent publishing for sure, at least in the circles I'm in. Um, so before I let you go, what, what talk to me about your evolution as a writer then, because by that point, you know, you were at the point where you were, you were a, a skilled enough writer storyteller to yeah start editing, figure out the publishing process and all that. Like what was your evolution just as a storyteller from say, you know, 12 years old or something? Oh, well, I didn't really um, try to start writing until I was an adult. So okay. um, just a bookworm as a kid through my teenage years. So <laughs> and then and then I tried to start writing and that's a whole other thing. You know, it, you you think you're going to be able to do what you just read and get it on paper and it's going to dazzle people. And then you realize that there are these mechanics and these practical matters that you have to actually process through your brain and consciously incorporate and make work. So, I mean, not that that's news to anybody who's done any writing, but that, that was the process for me. And a lot of that involved um, just jumping in with both feet with out of the gutter and just figuring it out as I went. Yeah. It was sort of like a, um, an, uh, you know, another, another training camp type situation, which I think we all have to go through as writers. So you talked about Stephen Hunter, dirty white boys. Um, what are some other novelists that you were were heavily into when you were younger um, or just books in general? Um, John D. MacDonald. Uh, okay. I, I, I have a, a vast collection of John D. MacDonald novels. He's probably in terms of um, just being just as a, as a workman, as consistent quality and as poetic prose, great insights. Uh, he's probably my number one influence. But in terms of um, how you're approaching it and what you're doing with it and how what you're communicating to people or how you're trying to affect people, that would pro- I would probably be more influenced by Thompson in that sense. But in terms of quality and consistency, uh, definitely John D. Um, and then, you know, lots of... Um, I'm not a big uh, Hunter S. Thompson fan, but um, Tom Wolfe, new journalism, definitely yeah, new journalism stuff. Yep, yeah, definitely Tom Wolfe is is his nonfiction probably more so than his fiction. Mm-hmm. Big influence or uh, someone who I admire, not someone who I uh, imitate in any way. <laughs> so yeah, so Tom Wolfe, uh, we should say. I mean, people know Hunter S. Thompson and Tom Wolfe, but oh gosh, Tom Wolfe uh, integrated with like the Merry Pranksters, right? Yeah, he's he um, wrote a nonfiction novel based around um, Ken Kesey's uh, going kind of nuts after uh, the publication of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. <laughs> so he traveled with them on their their bus. I think yes. the the destination on the front is said further. Yeah, if I remember right. It's been a long time since I read that one, but yeah, he he wasn't really part of their scene. He's you know he's analyzing it from the outside, and he's not. Um, drop an acid or anything i don't think <laughs> yeah he was part of that group of i mean i guess hunter s thompson stands a little bit alone around sort of the gonzo piece but they all influence each other like like uh tom wolf maybe joan didion uh gay talese writers like that um, yeah. yeah the yeah the the non-fiction novel thing hunter hunter s thompson i feel like he kind of made himself a character in his thing i mean uh, yes I, I'm, I haven't studied him enough but yeah that's my sense of it. And that's why it doesn't really click with me most of the time because sure. it's, it's, it's kind of self aggrandizing as opposed to reporting and giving you something 
you know, real genuine that you can take away. Yeah. Well, and I compare it to like Gate to Lease, which if anybody wants to get a quick primer on Gate to Lease or Tom, I mean, I'd, pr- I'd probably read like Frank Sinatra has a cold, which is just a, it's an article from Esquire, I think, where he followed Frank Sinatra around for a few days and hung out with him. And I think with him, it was like, it's different from Thompson because he sort of inhabits the way the narration is. It's like, he's in like a novel. It's, it's basically taking journalism and making it like a novel uh, from the right. narrative standpoint. And I, I think with Gay Talese, people say, well, how can you do that? You're a journalist. And you say, well, I asked them about this stuff. I know them so well. I asked them what they were thinking, you know, so that's different than Thompson where it was, it was more of an imagining. Yeah. And well, and that's Tom Wolf's angle on it is we actually have an edge over a, um, a novelist writing fiction because whatever we're writing in some sense really happened. So you you automatically have this level of credibility and it's, and it's automatically that much more intriguing to a reader. Yes. And I, that, that, that concept as well has leaked into uh, or has fed into documentary film as well. Right. Like where you see documentary films that are built like thrillers, for instance. Um, Yeah. Yeah, lots of the uh, the production quality, the the music they layer in and stuff is, sure. creates this tension, and they're they're looking for these dramatic moments. Yep. Yeah. So that's kind of interesting. Um. Yeah, that's interesting to to label Tom Wolf. Uh. I, yeah. I I have sort of similar influences around journalism. I guess the new journalism. Um. So just bef- again, um, I've kept you for a long time, so I appreciate that. Let me ask about filmmaking because I know The Wrong Man, which was that considered your debut novel, The Wrong Man? Yeah, I would yeah. say so. <laughs> so is, that, yes. that one uh, was option for film, correct? Yeah, it's been going around for quite a while now, and I don't know if it's ever going to come to fruition. Like the yeah. um, blurb you read in the in the beginning is a few years old at this point, yeah. and I'm, I'm still uh, talking to these guys, but um, I don't know. You know, it, it, I think lots of uh, books get optioned and then it just never happens. And this might be one of those cases. It's been, I, I had another um, indie filmmaker actually buy it out from under the guys who originally did it. And I told him I couldn't. And then he's like, just give me six months. I'll do it. This is going to work. And then he didn't, it didn't pan out, but he cut me a check and then it went back to these guys. And now I've talked to somebody else about it recently. So for whatever reason, it clicks with people can visualize it as a movie very easily. Yeah. Apparently. Yeah. And so we should just be clear. So people who don't know, you know, you write a novel and then often depending who publishes the novel, oftentimes, so that, that, that publisher will have the print rights and the print on demand rights and the digital, you know, book rights. But then there's subsidiary rights, right. Which are like film option, um, TV series option, things like that. And I'm not an entertainment lawyer, so I can't describe this well, but essentially what you're describing is someone approached you filmmakers and they said, Hey, we want to purchase the rights to make this into a movie within a certain period of time. And they give you, cut you a small check, right? That's what happened essentially. Yep. That's exactly it. They, they just are, are paying you to have uh, first go at this as, as making it into a movie. Yep. Yeah. And so, and, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. And I guess when you're like, I'm going the indie route, but I guess if, if um, you're published by a bigger publishing house, there's going to be, that's going to be built into the contract somewhere that they're going to have a hand in that. Yes. As in they're, they're going you know, for for big, like, let's just, I'm just going to make up a novelist, like, you know, James Patterson, his agent or whoever they're they're optioning these for film before their books ever published they're working on that right away sure yeah um whereas for for guys like us it's like we need to try to uh, get someone interested and then and then get that those rights sold but and then you got a one in a hundred or one in a thousand chance that the movie's actually going to get made anyway because they got to get funding for it yep on and on they have to continue to convince new people, new, 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 new people. 20 people have to say yes. And if one person along that line, maybe it's more than 20. If one person along the line says no, then it stops. But right. um, the reason I bring this up is that I think that really speaks to as a reader, what you, and as a consumer of media in general, as a film viewer, as a TV series viewer, what you view and how, when you view it, how often, what you choose to watch and read does influence what you get. And so, um, if it feels like things are this, what, like, why are we rebooting this show? Um, just know yeah. that there's tons of stuff out there that the gatekeepers have not pursued 
for various reasons, right? I mean, would you agree with that? Yeah, you mean that they're just they're just in this like um, I guess you could say like a cultural loop, like they're just going back to these same yes. themes when they actually could branch out and throw everybody something new. Yes, and, and they're I think- choosing they're choosing not to, even though the public might prefer that. Yes. And so I, th- I think as a public consumer of media, as a, as a independent citizen, like, you know, if you're buying the same book from the same writer, from the same publisher over and over again, and you never try anything new, like that's what you're going to continue to get, which some people are okay with that. Uh, but yeah, I just, I just wanted to be just known. Be entertained. Yes. But I just wanted to be known, like there's other stuff out there as well, you know? Um, yeah, it's hard. It's hard. You got to um, break into that space where people actually see you. And there is, there's a, there's a, there is a lot of gate, gatekeeping going on. So it is what it is. Yeah, it is what it is. Um, well, I'm glad you made some money off that book, at least. Uh, I'm sure the checks weren't too huge because you're still working a day job. But um, right. I think, you know, continue to do your work, selling the book, uh, getting this new one out there. It's roots down to hell. Um, Again, I yeah, read and the uh, the title change. I don't know how many people are familiar w- with it under the first title. Anyway, I haven't I haven't been promoting it much. Just just starting, but uh, I did have to change the title, and the new title does tie in with the main themes in the book. It's actually that's a Nietzsche. Um, it's taken from a Nietzsche line from uh, "Thus Spake Zarathustra," <laughs> and it's the uh, the tree that would reach its limbs to heaven must drive its roots to hell is that's obviously not exactly what it is but that's that's the gist of it so it's 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 working with the the heaven and hell themes and even the christianity theme since nietzsche was a a major critic of christianity yeah so it's 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 part of all of that yeah um i love the title i think it speaks well to the book um like i said i read it in two quick sittings um I'm really excited to get it out into the world and uh, have you get some more readers for it. Um, I really appreciate you being here. It's been fascinating to talk to you about noir, about fiction and nonfiction in some cases. Um, right. And I guess I should say again, thanks for creating out of the gutter, gutter books. Thanks for uh, perpetuating this um, culture of uh, freedom of expression. I really appreciate you being here, Matt. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. If you'd like to support the Roughneck Dispatch podcast, get in touch. Drop us a line. That's it. For now, we say adios. It ain't gonna hurt to leave you with some Billy Joe Shaver. Ain't no God in Mexico. Ain't no comfort in the kin. When you're down in Matamoros, getting busted by the man.